I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. It's a, a real, real honour to be here with Preeti to talk about this extraordinary book. Um, I'm just going to introduce Preeti um, and then we're going to go into questions. Um, Preeti Taneja is a writer and activist. Her first novel, We That Are Young, is a translation of Shakespeare's King Lear to contemporary India as a critique of empire and Hindu fascist settler coloni- colonialism in Kashmir. It won the UK's uh, Den- Desmond Elliott Prize for Best Literary Debut of the Year and was listed for international awards including the Folio Prize, the Shakti Bhatt First Book Prize, and the Prix Jean Michalski. It has been translated into several languages. Preeti is Professor of World Literature and Creative Writing at Newcastle University and, also, and has also taught writing in refugee camps with socio-economically disadvantaged communities across the UK and in HP Whitemore, a category A Men's Prism. She is a contributing editor to And Other Stories and uh, The White Review and a co-chair of English Pen, uh, Pen's Translation Advisory Group. Her second book um, that we're here to talk about today is Aftermath, A Lament for Prison, Terror, Trauma and Grief Following the London Bridge Attacks in November 2019. Um, I wanted to start by saying some words about this book. And as I was... Um, kind of coming here, I, I was flicking through it, and I opened on a page where you quote Alejandro Zambra, I think, and he says, "Books. some books say no to literature, and I think of this book as a book that says no, as a book that refuses, um, refuses to kind of capitulate or um, concede to discourses around terror, around violence, and concede, I think, principally to the idea that violence is an inevitability. And what I love so much about it is that I feel like it lays bare its political kind of intentions for a different set of conditions. And in doing so, I think, builds this framework that um, gives language back its purpose. And so I wanted to to first start with language and, and to ask you about lament. Um, so this book made me think about Greek tragedy and tragedy as a kind of aesthetic form, tragedy as a commentary on political life um, and the purpose of lament to that um, genre. I think lamentation functions as a kind of remembering a demand for um, recognition beyond pain um, and, and beyond, um, oh, sorry, a recognition of pain beyond pity and a kind of making visible of the alienation that's caused by grief. Um, and in the book, you write, this is a lament for many who will gather and hold these fragments. Um, so t- talk to me about um, what you understand the purpose of l- lamentation to be um, and its relationship to grief. That was a very long question. <laughs> <laughs> these questions are so fantastic and they're just so thoughtful and thought provoking. Um, because sometimes when you're writing from the perspective of this kind of grief and this huge trauma, you don't know quite what you're doing or why. But for me, this book was always had this essence of lamentation, this collectivity mm. that lamentation offers us. And it is to do with reclaiming a sense of kindness. It is to do with reclaiming a sense of 
the reality of what we experienced when we were inside prison, it had something important, joyous and um, collective to it while it was happening. And an event like this sort of, it floods the mind and the synapses with so much horror that one cannot ever reclaim those things, it feels. And so I lament for that in the book. And I'm trying to do that, in a sense, with a group of people who existed around this time. It's also something which you've asked me to think about its relationship to grief. This was a very individual grief, but it was also a shared grief, a collective grief. And it had inside it something to do with lamenting for how this could have happened. And that question of how was something I really had to wrestle with because it asks us to find beginnings and starting points and going backwards and backwards and backwards all the time to work out what the roots of violence are, what the roots of structural violence mm. are. Um, I think that's where this lament comes in for me. It's definitely something that when I imagine it in my mind, it's gendered. Mm. Women of colour coming together after war to wail together as a form of saying, we saw this happen, we saw it coming, we tried to say sound warnings, mm. we, we know this landscape, it is a terrible landscape, it is a landscape of fear, it is a landscape of terror, and it has produced violence from it as well. So that is how it sits within that. Yeah, and I, I think um, what I get from this book is, as you're saying, that gendered quality of lament, it's kind of choral, it's guttural, it's necessarily collective, and... I wanted to also ask you, I guess, about the limits of language. I think what I found so moving about this book is that it starts with an event um, and it examines the repercussions of that event, but also resists the kind of narrative totality. It's like it's fragmented. It's about the, the splitting of, I guess, narrative voice. And I think that that shows us that nothing can capture the event in its totality, right? Nothing can render it in the way that it, it should be rendered. Um, and you, you talk about the event that happens and happens and happens and kind of keeps breaking over us like a wave. So I wanted to ask you about um, fragmentation and whether there's a freedom in that narrative choice. Fragments um, are a really important form to think through trauma, to express trauma. There's like a very close relationship in my work between aesthetics and feeling um, and creating feeling that I want my reader to come with me on this journey of feeling and inside that feeling. So fragments allow us to do that in very simple ways. But the way they do it is what they don't say. They do it because of their relationality to each other. So the white space is just as important as what's on the page. Mm. And it creates this kind of vibration. It creates a hum that a text has all of its own. It, it creates a kind of resonance, which is so important in an event like this. Um, writing about an event like this because they give us it gives us the space to stop and think about the weightiness of the paragraph that's gone before and writing about this I needed that space for me and I think the reader needs that space as well to to hold all of these different parts and put them together in their own ways to to make something that is nothing to do with almost what's on the page, but mm. resonates with them, or that vibration resonates with them in its own way. Mm. And inside the fragments of Aftermath, the sentences themselves create gap, have gaps in them. There's a lot of sort of breath work, as, as, it, as it is, in those. And, and that is, again, because that we need those silences as readers in order to slow down and consider all of the very complex things that are swirling around um, state structure, all the way to an individual in into the darkest parts of the prison 
close supervision centres and so on, and then back out again into society through the media um, and all of the responses that happen after that. Mm. So it is an incredibly freeing form, but it also traps us in a mm. vibration um, and asks us to listen, become attuned better to something um, which we, in our very, very fast-moving lives, perhaps miss. Mm. And I think it's also um, a rejection of... Uh, I guess in the aftermath, what is asked of people who have experienced trauma, which is to present that pain publicly, fully, entirely. And I think what what the fragment does is allow you to, as you were saying, um, find those vibrations to um, kind of call to other people. Um, yeah, to think about what you experience collectively rather than, you know, an individual person who can give a full account of what's um, gone on. Um, I wanted to, to, to kind of Continuing that thread, I guess, about um, uh, language, I wanted to ask um, about the circulation of political discourses um, that, that really tried to make sense of the event afterwards, but never really touch it. Um, and I think this book does a really uh, great job of muddying the kind of purposeful distinction that's made between the literary and the political. When I say <laughs> I felt when reading it that it gave language back its purpose, it reminded me that language can articulate pain, right? That language has some, that it, it has some agency to do work. And so I wondered what your, um, what your thoughts were on that, because I, I find that the distinction between the literary and the political is so often made from sites of power institutions who are invested in lowering the stakes, telling us that actually literary language has nothing to do with the pain that violence causes. And, and I guess we might enjoy the kind of like beauty of language un uninterrupted by critiques of like racial capitalism or yep. violence or terror. Um, so I wanted to ask you about that. Like, do you agree? What do you think about that? Uh, um, <laughs> look, honestly, I think that if you think that language or literary language has nothing to do with politics or it's not political, then you're living in a kind of willful denial <laughs> that um, I don't want to be part of. You know, I, I don't have it, it for some might consider it a luxury because it comes from a sort of thinking that, you know, of course, my life is absolutely fine. And and everything I'm reading is completely mm. neutral mm. and everything I'm writing from that perspective has this kind of entitlement to it. I don't have that luxury. I don't want it. And I am a political writer because language is political. Language is my country. It's my weather. It's where I live. Mm. It, it, it's my tool. There's nothing else. Mm. We, we are made of narrative. Mm. The narratives we're making now and that we'll go away and tell ourselves about who we are and what we've been through. Everything we have is story. So every word we choose matters. Mm. And as a writer who both teaches and writes and talks about that writing, I have to be so sure that the weight of my words reaches where they need to go. Mm. And that's into those places perhaps where someone might think this isn't for me. I can never be this person who expresses themselves in a particular way and so on and so forth. Mm. So for me, that, that distinction belongs to a whole ecosystem, which I don't want to be part of. Mm. I think also um, of how uh, that kind of language, taking that approach to language, it has some connection to our structures of feeling to like, borrowed from I guess Raymond Williams like this idea that our internal sense of what is possible is related to 
what we say about the world and what we say about our conditions. And I see in this book when I when I was talking about, um, I guess, the framework that you give us for this transformative potential of language in talking about abolition or in talking in bringing into the um, text abolitionist reflections and um, musings, I think what you're giving us is this sense that we could live differently and, and that the aftermath needn't define our understandings of our relationships to ourselves, to, our, um, to others, to events as they happen. And so I wanted to ask um, about that. I, um, Angela Davis writes about the prison as a place that kind of disappears people. And um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore talks of it as an institution that emerges via a history of um, racial capitalism that extracts like the resource of, of life, which is time. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you, what is it like to operate from that kind of zone of disappearance? What's it like to what what was the experience of doing those writing workshops with people in a place that the state would like us to forget? You're asking us to think about time and constructions of time and how we make them on the page, mm. but also how we experience them inside those kinds of spaces which are outside normal time. Mm. Because, you know, long and life sentences are extraordinarily harsh. And when I say that, I'm very, very careful because everyone is thinking, but what about the really violent people? What about this kind of violence that we have to live in fear of because it exists? So there's two kinds of time we're dealing with. We're dealing with the psychological time and the circularity of trauma and memory and events happening and happening in our minds. And we're also living with linear time, which is a kind of capitalist time of kind of doing our jobs from nine to five and getting paychecks and so on from that. And in my work, I have to think about how to understand the concept of a long and life sentence in both of those ways, because time in both of those places, in both of those ways, in those spaces gets completely warped mm. for those who are experiencing it for years, decades in these ways. It's very, very difficult to imagine what that's actually like experientially. So, you know, the book is trying to do something with that structurally. And that also comes from a rejection of the idea that time, as we might understand it in very traditional narrative, has this sort of rising action <laughs> to a hero's kind of climax, which we all always understand the base of our narrative because that's how we're taught to think about story, right? But if you come from cultures that don't think about time in very linear ways, in very straight ways, yeah. which I don't, you know, Indian language, Indian literature thinks about time in circular ways. I can put this very simply, the word for yesterday in Hindi is the same as the word for tomorrow, it is gal. And so for me, that is the architecture of how I think about that time. And it has been since before I could basically speak because it was around me. And knowing that circularity and experiencing the repetition that happens inside prison, as well as that sort of dailiness of having to do a kind of job in a teaching room, that's the way I think about time in a book. I don't know if I've answered no, your no, no, question. No, no, you have. No, no, you definitely have. And there's something I think... I think about this in a lot of uh, the work that I, I do as well. This idea of, um, I think it has a, it, your understanding of time is not only a way to elucidate how time operates inside, but it's also a way to elucidate 
um, what we do in the aftermath, right? If we are if we are people who um, hold abolitionist uh, principles or values, or if we're thinking about complex ways to think about violence, often if we think of like linear progress nar narratives as like you know the movement from A to B, we get stuck. We we find ourselves at an impasse. We say terrible things have happened. How do we you know prevent those things from happening uh, happening again, etc. And what a, a more complex understanding of time, which is what you're saying, does I think is give us back this ability to think beyond the given, right? To think beyond these structures of violence that tell us at any given time that at any given time that the things that we dream of are impossible. And what came across to me in, in this book when I say also at the beginning that it lays its like political desires for a different set of conditions bare is that when you say things like um that you never want this kind of violence to happen um, again or that there is only a city that cannot me be made so, uh, safer by building over its cracks. I think what you're saying is that any way forward has to be relational. It has to be about our connections to one another. And so I, I wanted to ask about care um, because I see in in the lament and I see in the theorizing that, that is in this book, this idea that we constitute one another. And yeah, t talk to me about that. So the form of the book is theory, yeah. and it's a craft book, so it's a kind of book as well that thinks about how to write, um, because I was the writing teacher, and that's my experience, so I have to locate the work inside that experience. But I never want to forget that the real people who are involved and what they suffered and what we are still all suffering, some people in this room even, with the, with the cyclical nature of grief, with the way that grief shatters us, with, with the way we have to come to terms, and that word has that, you know, very easy pun in it, terms, we have to come to terms, so language, we have to find language to talk about this event, the people who were involved, the state's interventions, the stories that grew up around it, things that we, we resisted, that we don't want something that is incredibly shocking and horrific to allow the extension of surveillance powers, to allow more stop and search powers that discriminate against black and Asian youth and our streets in a majority way, in a disproportionate way. We don't want our prisons to be expanded so that we can then send those people and stop, who are stop and searched increasingly into those places. You know, that is a vote of no confidence in the future of everybody in this room. And I feel very strongly about that. Mm. You know, I will not, if I can intervene in any small way through one tiny word or sentence, through the compact that trust that a book makes with a reader and reading is an incredibly intimate act, just as writing is, allow that to carry mm. on. If one person sitting with their book can think more deeply about what they can then do. And you talked about Raymond Williams, but we talk about all sorts of things to turn idea into experiment into action then that is something I can do that is what is in my hands and that's what is in my power and I think you know that's why I'm so grateful for this kind of care for this kind of care mm. that comes in and says let's have these discussions let's have them in an open way let's write the difficult work let's see what this looks like clearly even when we're grieving mm. and I think all of us are grieving when we lose somebody through violence when we know someone who's committed violence, when we see the violence of the state that cracks down immediately on all of us through those acts, 
there's a sort of grief that happens inside us. And we're too unable sometimes to admit that to each other. So maybe the act of shared reading a book can do that, mm. you know? And and writing as well. I think what you're saying reminds me of this thing that Anne Boyer says. Um, she says something like, I, I would rather write nothing at, um, at all than propagandize for the world as is. And I feel like that's, when I say it, this book refuses, it refuses to reinsert itself back into a narrative that, that would have us, yeah, reaffirm this, this binary conception of terror or this binary conception of um, good and bad hu- human beings or good and bad people, um, people that deserve to be disappeared and people who don't. I wanted to talk um, a bit about the kind of fictional, I guess, landscape that you create in the, in the Atro city. And it, it made me think, um, you say this thing, I never want another mind to be lost in the space between two extremes or to go on to perpetrate such violent harm. I refuse to call this dreaming. I want um, a government of heart and mind and tongue that does not treat lives as contingent. I want a neighbor that believes the same. And yeah, it made me think about uh, another concept from um, Ruth Wilson Gilmer about about abolitionist um, geographies. And she kind of posits the abolitionist geography in relation, in opposition to the carceral landscape. And I think about how you write about the Atro city in this book as a kind of carceral landscape, one one that's defined by surveillance apparatus, you know, um, exploitation, forms of violence. Um, so could you speak to like the limits of the Atro city as you've uh, rendered it in this book and its carceral logics and how we might use, I guess, abolitionist principles or a different way of seeing to think and build beyond it? Okay, so the Atro City is a concept um, that I think through the book, it's the place where the book is set. And it comes from breaking down this word atrocity. It's a very easy thing to do um, with language, just to split out things and to yield more meaning. And it's a place in in my imagination, but it's also a place that I think exists in reality that contains both a university and a prison. And it contains a media culture, it contains colonialism, it is built on, you know, the people who drowned in the transatlantic slave trade because they, they were thrown overboard for insurance money, you know, it is built on capitalism and the devaluing of human life in order to make money, which the system of prison is very, very, very much part of, mm. it's implicated in, as, as is the idea of the elite university, which is going to be an extremely unpopular thing to say, um, for, for a lot of people, it's difficult for a lot of people to hear, but it matters that we do, um, that we do, that we do say that, mm. you know, and we all have experienced that in our own ways. So how can we escape that? Well, we have to believe with Audrey Lord that the master's house isn't the only house. We move away from that idea that we have to live in this world and we can stand up even when we don't think there's anything left in us or especially when there shouldn't be anything left of us when everyone around us that we're supposed to trust the state actors the police the the liaison people the university high ups and so on is saying shh don't talk to anybody be quiet be good keep your keep keep the secrets of the reputational so the reputational damage doesn't happen it's better for you if you do this and it's a false promise of safety Because we can see that, because we have writers who have gone before us who have experienced that and they've written it down because we've read that with each other, because there are people who are brave enough, even when they've lost the person that they love, that they birthed, 
to stand up the next day and say that on social media and then do it in the press. I'm talking about Dick Merritt, um, who so bravely and courageously and completely instinctively said, this is what I think. This is what I believe. This is what my son believed. And this is what I'm going to put out there. And two fingers, Boris Johnson, because you're not having this one to make a worse world for the rest of us mm. today. Thank you. Um... I guess kind of um, following that, I, I wanted to say, um, as you were talking, I was thinking about that bit, um, sorry, bit in the book where you talk about, you know, if we're going to trust um, fiction writers, they have to be able to to help us, aid us in that project that Miriam Carver says of a jailbreak of the imagination. So we, we, if we're going to trust fiction writers, we have to be prepared to scream. Um, <laughs> that's, that, that was really, um, I think, instructive for me. And I wanted to ask, precisely about that, the shoring up of our political commitments in the face of being re, uh, reinserted into a specific narrative in the aftermath. So this is really a question about like kind of grief and complicity. I think that this book is a reminder that just by virtue of being alive in a violent world, we are enmeshed and entangled in scenes of violence, right, in the consequences of it. And so how did writing this help you think about complicity and how did it fortify your own political commitments? How did it shore up your sense that we could live differently? And, and as you said, that um, all of these political discourses that circulate are a failure of the imagination um, and, and a failure of the things that we owe to one another. Your questions, <laughs> they're like language mazes. They're very beautiful. Um, I see them in sort of um, these, um, what is that? Clissant term, you know, they've got this paradigmatic nature to them. So look, complicity is a really, really difficult thing to feel for all of us. And everyone probably has it to a greater or lesser extent. And with this event, having taught someone who killed someone I cared about, um, that was an extremely confrontational moment for me. And the complicity came from sharing a history of and South Asian identity. And it forced me to think very, very, very hard about why I felt like that. And then dive really into this unspoken, untaught, unacknowledged or underacknowledged history of partition, which I think has really got a, that curation of our knowledge and our mm. education systems has so much to blame for so much of the violence that we experience in our societies today. And I think if there's one way that I practically can offer to a case, to prevention, to care, it is that let us teach dignity in our origin stories. Let us be honest about the ways in which we are connected to each other from the earliest times that we can. Because I've seen this over and over in a 20 year career of teaching in so many different places from the elitist of the elite universities right down to HMP Whitemore. This knowledge is like held in people's memories. It's held in oral stories. It's held in parents passing stuff down. And there's a vacuum of authority mm. to say, this is where I'm from. And that's, that means I can stand in the ground that I have made. And it's a question of dignity. Without that, there's a vacuum that's created. An ideology of all kinds can rush into that gap. And it can create so much damage, whether that's, you know, 
right right wing fascist ideology or whether it's you know terror that we understand it in the way the nation kind of mm. constructs the the terrorist i feel like it's you know again it feels like something so nebulous but it's actually something very easy teach teach it mm. teach it as early and as young as you can mm. in a way that is honest and in a way that says the reason why 50% of muslims in this country live underneath the poverty line is a curation of immigration systems that goes back decades and then a socioeconomic system that keeps people in a structure of class poverty and all of these things are connected in extremely important ways mm-hmm. let's not impoverish imaginations inside those structures forever that is the city that is the prison mm-hmm. if you want metaphors and then there's the real prison which is full of young people and older people who don't have that dignity at school and it causes a schism with what's been what they're knowing about themselves from home it leads to all sorts of damage that can lead to school exclusions school exclusions have a huge role to play in who ends up on the streets i'm explaining this in steps this is the school to prison pipeline mm-hmm. this is carceral capitalism at work in very practical ways and sweeping these young men off the streets into a justice system that's weighted against them mm. what role does the literary have to play in this it has every single role to play in this if you're writing work that refuses to acknowledge that language itself is political and it's being taught to those students always as the canon then you're creating shame you're creating a disgraceful situation in which there's never an outlet to say that is something that i can understand that is something i can build my my sense of self on from the external mm. internally or internally into the external mm. and so i'm mixing a lot of ideas here i'm mixing psychology and politics and you know but as the atrocity holds all of these things mm. Mm. i think um when i asked that question about complicity um, and and what you've elucidated so well is that it's it's not a question about the individual right because yeah. we can we see how the state mobilizes the language of responsibility in the aftermath of harm right to say uh, a group of people this is the uh, this singular action represents a group of people and so they must condemn condemn this action and so i i say that to say that also in the aftermath we have a a choice to think through our responsibilities to one another and we fortify that through language as you were saying this book is also in a way gives a very clear and very strong critique of, of something that you've mentioned before which is racist institutions institutions like the university the prison um the publishing industry and and so on and something i was kind of curious about in your understanding of grief and the, the aftermath is the program's connection to to cambridge university which comes to be figured in the story that we tell about it as this kind of paragon of good and i i was thinking about um uh like butler's writings on grievability and uh, what jackie wang says about um rejecting a politics of innocence um so that we might better understand why violence happens in the first place and i wondered whether you had any reflections on it and by that i mean how the story that emerges in the aftermath reaffirms these very two two categories virtuous kind of university saviors as it were and the very lowest of society those people that you know are positioned as ungovernable in some sense 
Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, and it's an incredibly difficult question for me on a personal level mm. as well as to unpick some of the things that you said, because they have to do with narratives. They have to do with the narratives that we believe about what I was talking about before, this kind of linearity of the hero's narrative, that someone can be redeemed. And that has its roots in a Christianity, eschatology. Um, it's little known, but now will be well-known fact. I studied, the I studied theology at Cambridge as an undergraduate. So this idea that we have that somehow what we can do is intervene in lives and save them is so deeply embedded in our storytelling. When we come across a person or people, group of people, this idea sort of permeates charity work, it permeates, which has roots in missionary work, it has, you know, what we do when we intervene abroad, when we intervene in lives at home, that is the most dangerous narrative we can go in with, especially when it's attached to an institution which has this world-leading reputation, which is so exclusive and elite that many people who work in the prison system not the people who are incarcerated alone will never access it and so this myth we have about this brilliance and this thing that's caught created by this elite structure of power is something that you know in the case as it unfolded in the inquest it came, it became clear that this idea of this place as a protective factor was based on this myth mm. and all of these people who just thought, oh, it's Cambridge University and that's great. But what was really there when we came, when it came down to it was very little in terms of really understanding the roots of where a lot of these guys come from who are incarcerated for terrorism related offenses. This person who is the perpetrator in particular and so on. Did they really understand? The, educate, the pressure of education in South Asian culture in Britain, what education stands for and what it means, and how that fed a certain kind of personality into expectation, into need. I mean, I'm not going to psychologize. We can't know what really went on in the mind of anyone who commits horrific violence. But I think we all have to think quite carefully about the narratives we want to believe. And who we think is safe and why, what institutions are around us that we think are safe. Like logically, we're taught to believe the police are the safety, but you know from your work and your experiences working with Sisters Uncut, mm. working on Sarah Everard's case, that that is a very dangerous. Yeah, I think, I think also that, um, yeah, I think you've said it really well, which is that, um, you know, the prison exists as a, a kind of disciplinary regime, but it tells us a big lie, which is that we are safer by virtue of people being disappeared. And I think what, what we find in um, people who are doing all forms of work, like things like mutual aid, things like um, grassroots organizing, is often we as, as individuals, as communities, have a lot more... Um, uh, I guess, power to intervene to prevent violence from happening than outside state actors. And we also see the horrific acts of violence that, that um, are perpetrated by the state under the guise of de-radicalization, counter-terror, un under those narratives that you've exposed as narratives, right? Um, I have um, two, two more questions. And one is, when, when I was reading this book, I was also thinking about this thing that um, Berlant says, um, 
even those people that you would think of as defeated are human beings trying to find a way to stay attached to life from within it. And I think that that's what this book is, a way to try and um, stay attached to what, what we know life could be. And so I wanted to ask, um, in the aftermath, kind of narratives of defeat kind of abound. And the idea of prisoners as inherently fundamentally violent is reaffirmed in the public imaginary. Um, and I think of abolition as one way that defeated people tried to stay attached to life. So could you talk about um, why your focus in your writing and in the work that you've done across your career has always been on the defeated, right? Mm-hmm. Has always been on those people that others would say are living terrible lives. Um, okay, so there's two things. There's first of all the work I do as a teacher, which isn't um, which isn't unconnected to the work I write, obviously. Um, but my first novel is actually told from the perspective of the Rishi Sunaks of this world, the families of the very very wealthy Indians who run Indian power behind the scenes through business um, and practices that were put in place um, after after empire with empire legislation on the ground so you know i'm i'm looking at power through power's eyes in that book and seeing how those at the very top of our society order it for the rest of us and the entrapment that 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 then comes from that the damage and the violence that that comes from that and of course aftermath is a very different book it's not fiction it's based on you know lives of people who are um in you know in the They've been disappeared, as you mm. as you call it. Not all people in prison, not all people who are not in prison are not violent. Um, it's a kind of mental gymnastics you have to do with what law is, what law allows, what law does not allow. Is pushing the button to drop drones on thousands of Iraqis somehow allowed because of a legislative agenda? How does that touch us in ways which are the same or different from someone who actually physically commits that act of violence and hurts and kills. Mm. These are really difficult questions. They are very heavy questions and they hurt us in our imaginations. They hurt us in our minds. I don't have the answers to these questions, but I know that, you know, in all of this, you have a choice to make about what you do with the one life that you have. And for me, that choice is not to look away and it's Mm. not to only write either. Because I'm not, and I'm not degrading writing as a kind of form of activism. I think it's a very important form of activism. But I think sitting next to somebody as they struggle through something, you know, just an hour in a life that's awful is a part of my activism. I think being a kind of person inside the university system that students can come to with their own questions about how to live in the world and I can show them a canon of literature that they can go away and read with that perhaps they won't get in their courses and their modules necessarily, which uphold a certain kind of different canonicity. That's something I can do in the world. You know, the hours that you have are the ones that you that, that matter most are the ones where you're sitting and conversing with somebody and finding a connection. It may last beyond that hour. And it may not, but what else do we have? I think also that there's something in there about the importance of building a critical consciousness when you're talking about um, teaching, because I, I think that's where the impetus for action comes from, right? This idea of that 
you're looking at the world in a specific way or you're looking at, at, um, at the world with the aim of exposing violence and not shying away from it. Um, I think that you know, provides you with some understanding that will enable you to go on to make interventions where possible, interventions in castral landscapes and in loads of different spaces. So I think I, I really agree with that. It's incredibly important. Um, just before we go to questions, I, I wanted to end on this to say, um, Jack wrote his thesis um, on the overrepresentation of people of colour in the prison system. And I think the way that you, you write about Jack and Saskia in this book is is so tender and, and with so much care. And I think about, it made me think about the things that we leave behind as evidence of our political commitments. Um, and like you write at the end of the book, um, what the prison does not allow to bloom, but what persists anyway, things like flowers, things like Jack's thesis. Um, and this is a question, I guess, about the connection between our ability to dream, conceive of that which does not yet exist, um, which is how I would define the, um, the imagination, and I guess our will to persist. So what is the purpose of, of the dreamscape for you, the purpose of the literary and or political imagination? Um, and how does it allow you to, to defy those rules and hegemonic ideas that have been set in place by the state and its institutions? I love I love that you brought Jack by name and um, by invocation into this space. And I want to take a second to recognize his life and his contribution and his incredible parents. I love the question as well, because I think the dreamscape is basically where I, where I live most of my life. Um, it's profoundly important to me. It keeps me in the position of outsider, which I do my work in. And it's the answer in itself to how we should live. But it can't feed people. You know, it can't keep them warm. The cost of living is going up and up. And maybe that means the cost of dreaming is going to get even higher. If you can't eat, how can you? Feed your imagination as well. Like, that is a very, very real pressing issue. I live in Newcastle. I live on the edge of Biker, which is one of the most socioeconomically deprived parts of the country. It's also a city of refuge. You know, I see this pressure building and building every day, and I see mutual aid growing and growing every day. And I want, and I love that mutual aid culture that we have there. But I also don't want the state just to make make the narrative that, look, all these people are coming together and doing all of this work. Lucky <laughs> us, you know, let's, let's let them get on with it. You know, the purpose of the literary and the political imagination is, I think, to see kind of three steps from where we are now. Call it before it's too late. Mm -hmm. Write a different way of thinking so that we can work with that um, going forward. And not to separate the literary and the political from each other. You can't separate them. I mean, I don't set out to defy literary rules <laughs> because I just stay, when I'm writing, I was just staying grounded in the way I think and is right to feel and to write and say what I feel. And if it's kind of hybrid or experimental or whatever, it's multiplicitous, that's because of my political being. It's shaped by different influences. It's got different languages inside it. And, and you know, humans are complex. All of us are complex. I choose with that and, and the privilege I have of my education and luck and stubbornness of whatever it is that's put me in this stool today um, to work with people with that outlook of, mm. you know, celebrating that and pulling that complexity and multiplicity and out of them and and allow them to find their own words to say the things that they want to say and work with the people that they want to work with to, to make that. I think that's what abolitionist writing pedagogy is mm. to me. 
the critical in interventions I choose to make refuse obedience to power because I think that that power is a shame. Mm. And anyone who knows a South Asian or Indian origin woman will know that calling someone else a shame is like the harshest thing we can say <laughs> about anything. And I live in a world in which that shame is constantly being pushed into my body, into my mind. And I and I just completely reject it. Mm. I reject it in my writing. I reject it in the way I put myself in the world mm. because it's not mine to carry. And I want to help my students find that in themselves as well mm. so that they can do their work, so that they can face the blank page and say the things that they want to say, which are more important than they have any idea about. And that's how I choose to answer this question. You know, how should we live in the world with compassion for the people who are the most vulnerable, like Jack had? like his father has, the kind that recognises its own culpability and sits with that. Mm. You know, I'm not immune from that culpability. I, I, I bought into some of those myths early on too. Why wouldn't you grow up in them? They're mm. very, very compelling. They are the structures, the architecture and the foundations of the actual city. Mm. So until we can find ways to knock those down, and sometimes we have to do that after these kinds of violent events, you know, we're always reckoning with that and do it with compassion, do it with humility and always do it with the awareness that this is not the way it has to be. Mm. I think that's the only thing mm. I can say. And that it's a lifelong commitment as well. That's... You almost don't know you're making it. Yeah, <laughs> you just, yeah. you know, when you look back and you think that's what I was doing. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I think now we have uh, time for a few questions. And um, yeah, I just want to remind the audience to be respectful and to think through their questions before they ask them. Um, anybody have a question on that note? Thank you very much. Um, that's absolutely excellent and a really powerful um, analysis of grief, trauma. I like the way you kind of engage with the intersections of, of grief, trauma, vulnerability, um, and violence. Um, it's very, very piercing. I guess my question is, and I guess more of a probe, if, if I may, uh, is to, I was sitting here, I was wondering how you manage rage, how you manage rage in the process of dissecting, deconstructing, dismantling sites of power. I really think that as I think I would like readers and critics um, and anyone writing to be attuned to the ways in which women of colour write with anguish and this very fine line between that anguish and that anger. Anger is a positive force in some cases and anguish is the thing that we have to work through through that force. I feel absolutely anguished at the idea that the ungrievable lives in this country are South Asian and black lives. And we've seen that through the pandemic. We see that in the, in the ways in which media has responded to these awful atrocities in Ukraine, but they've relativized them with their, how could it happen to this group of people narrative when it's been happening for all this time to the other group of people, which are expendable and ungrievable mm. lives. And this question that you were asking me before about ungrievable lives has to do with how I manage this anger because I find it so important to never stop asking myself about the person 
who lives next door to me, not just to project my compassion, empathy into other countries, but to think so carefully about Britain and British black lives, Asian lives, South Asian lives, Muslim lives, because that is where the state continues to willfully decide that these people are unwarnable, ungrievable and suitable for the experiments mm. of surveillance, which will catch up with everybody else in a few short years if they haven't already. Mm. And we, you know, my anger at that comes from this anguish I have when I see these lives get harmed and turn to harm. And I can't say this enough. I have had enough. I think we all have had enough. And I just feel like knowing that is why I go back to the desk every day. Mm. That's how I work through with my anger. Thank you so much. Um, I have a question from Cyberspace, if you're willing. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. Ben Jarman asks, question for Pretty and greetings, and sorry I couldn't be there in person. What do you think, if anything, would be different today if the police had not killed Usman Khan on the bridge? Having been involved in these events and in the LT project like you, I've often wondered about this. Would your book have come out the same way? Ben is a person who I've who read the manuscript of the book. He's a criminologist and he was involved in learning together just like I was. Um, and one of the people without whom this book wouldn't have been possible. So I'm very grateful to him for being here in the cyber <laughs> tonight. Um, okay. I find that question is one I've never asked myself. And especially in relation to how this book had come out, I I would have been able to direct some of my anger and anguish to that person as a living person. And I, in the book, I do condemn the violence that he perpetrated as an individual and the choices that he made. Absolutely. What would have happened if he hadn't been killed by police that day? I suppose that is a different world because it asks us also to think about what would it feel like if police and Jean-Charles Zemenez is a very different person, obviously completely, who did not commit any kind of violence whatsoever at all. But this kind of question of mm. armament and this kind of question of what is our responsibility in that moment to another life is, I think, at the root of what Ben is asking me. The book would have come out differently. Of course mm. it would have. I don't even know how. Do you have another yeah. cyber, cyber question? question? If no one's cyber got question. one in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, which is from Elizabeth Chakrabarti. To Priti, thank you for your book. I agree with what you said about the essential to teach about partition in the UK. I was worried this week when it was announced that the positives of empire will be taught in schools. What would you say to the education minister? <laughs> I know what I would say. I think everyone knows what we were going to say about this. We have to vote with our vote that we have in the what we call our democracy. And um, that's all we can do. I mean, what are the positives? I mean, Ben's question speaks to this too. What would have happened if empire hadn't happened? That's the answer to that question. What positives, what worlds would we have seen from that? What would have happened if partition hadn't happened? So many lives, so much generational damage. Thank you very much, Pretty. Thank you very much, Lola. Thank you so and much. And a round of applause, I think. <laughs> Thanks for listening. 
To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.